Hebrews chapter 6, and beginning in verse 4. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would write its truths on our hearts. Open up the scriptures to us as only you can. Enlighten us, cause us to see Christ. And in this be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine 300 years from now, if the Lord has not returned by then, someone discovers an email in cyberspace, and the email contains these words. On Tuesday, Patricia and I took the kids to McDonald's for a happy meal. We loved it. That's it. That's the full content of the mail, the email. Now, imagine a guy 300 years from now trying to work out what these words meant. Then imagine McDonald's isn't around 300 years from now. The food chain no longer exists. Nothing except the kingdom of God lasts forever. And so the guy does research and finds that McDonald is a last name that has its roots in Scotland. So he understands the phrase, I took the kids to McDonald's as an obvious reference to the fact that uh, perhaps it's the husband, we're not told, but that's the guess. The husband and the wife, whose name was Patricia, took the kids to visit a Scottish family for a happy meal. And obviously that means that McDonald's family were very friendly people and made everyone feel welcome. And the whole experience was a happy one. We laugh at that, or at least we crack a smile with that, but that's because we know that in our 21st century American context, the word McDonald's means a restaurant chain, and Happy Meal is one of the items on the menu, usually for kids, although adults have been known to have them too. A Happy Meal at McDonald's does not mean a happy experience visiting a Scottish family. It means the family went to a restaurant called McDonald's and the kids had a special children's meal. Each child probably received a small toy in the process, now, we understand those words because in the context of the 21st century here in America, those words mean something specific. Later, when someone comes along, not knowing our 21st century American context, they fail to understand the communication. Well, let me say this. McDonald's being a Scottish family and the meal being a joyous event, that is not the correct interpretation of the words found in that historic email. What were the words? On Tuesday, Patricia and I took the kids to McDonald's for a happy meal. We loved it. Those are the words that were found, but the interpretation given was wrong. Why? 
We should think about why. Because there's a failure, there was a failure, or there will be a failure to understand the words in their historical context. And so, we need to always ask the question, when we're reading our Bibles, what did these words mean to their original audience? That is so vital. That's a key to Bible interpretation. Again, what did these words mean to their original audience? I say this because answering that question is vital as we look at the words before us in the passage in Hebrews chapter 6. The passage speaks about people falling away. It's a passage about apostasy, someone walking away from the faith. And so we need to ask who or what kind of person is being described here? Is it referring to a genuine Christian or is something else in view? Let's look again at Hebrews 6 verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. These words are strong. And something we should note is the fact that the writer, now hear this, the writer is not describing the readers themselves. Now, when this is pointed out, you see it. Like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I see it. But when you see this, there's a shift that can be made. And what happens is that there is a shift from the first and second person to the third person. The writer shifts from using words like us and you to now... He uses words like those, those who have once been enlightened. Do you see that? Once you see it, you can understand that's significant. Another observation, the writer is not referring to a hypothetical situation, a hypothetical scenario, and that's the impression given when we read translations like the King James Version. The King James Version at this point reads, if they shall fall away. The New King James Version if they fall away. But there's no if in the original text. The ESV, English Standard Version, has it right, and then have fallen away. New American Standard, same exact words, and then have fallen away. I don't believe this is speaking of a hypothetical situation. This is speaking about real apostasy. It happens to real people. So what do we do with this text? Well, one view of this passage is what we call the Wesleyan view. That's the view that salvation can be lost. And they look at this passage and say, there it is, proof text, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 onwards, salvation can be lost. Genuine, born-again believers can lose their salvation. This is a view that was promoted by John Wesley, which is why we call it the Wesleyan view. He was the Methodist leader in England who had great prominence at a certain time in history alongside uh, George Whitfield, who is one of my church heroes from the past. And John Wesley wrote this, speaking of this passage, these words, quote, "...must not every unprejudiced person see the expressions here used are so strong and clear that they cannot..." without gross and palpable wrestling, be understood of any but true believers. And so he cites these verses as proof against assurance of salvation or eternal security. Wesley uh, then went on to say this, On this authority, I believe a saint may fall away, that one who is holy or righteous in the judgment of God himself may nevertheless so fall from God as to perish everlastingly. So, Wesley, based on this passage, taught that believers can lose salvation, and there we go. There are a number of problems with that interpretation, with that view. In fact, there are massive problems with that view, the main one being that it is totally contradictory to the clear passages of Scripture regarding salvation. We saw a number of them last time. John chapter 6, 36 through 40. Jesus said, It's the will of my Father that I lose none of those whom he's given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. John chapter 10, we saw it. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 through to 39. Do you remember? Nothing can separate us. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then nail on the head verse for me is 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So according to the Apostle John, who was also the author of John 3.16, his understanding was if someone leaves the faith, not goes to another church, but leaves the faith, they never were part of the true faith. They were never of us. And that's manifested by the fact that they are now no longer with us. We saw last time that We study the scripture because we believe the Bible is consistent. If it's not consistent, why would you study? You just say, let's throw up our hands, you can't understand the Bible. No, because though there are around 40 authors of scripture, 40 authors in the Bible, there's only one divine author, that's God, and he's not confused when anyone else is. He's not the author of confusion. We do that ourselves. We are confused by ourselves. He's never confused. And so we study to show ourselves approved, rightly handling the Word of God. And that's with the promises. As we study, we will get a clear grasp on the Scriptures. God is truth himself, and truth is not contradictory. Roger Nicole listed some of the Scriptures that are clear regarding whether or not we can lose salvation. Let me quote. It's a lengthy quote, but stay with me. Scripture asserts that he who has begun a good work will perfect it until the day of Christ. Scripture asserts that life shall not separate believers from the love of God in Christ. Scripture asserts that the golden chain of God's purpose is not thinning out toward the end, but that the very people who are known, foreordained, called, and justified are also glorified. Scripture asserts that believers are kept by the power of God through faith unto final salvation for an incorruptible inheritance. Scripture asserts that true believers are sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. Scripture asserts that apostates were never true members of Christ because otherwise they would not have fallen away. Scripture asserts again and again that the new life in Christ is eternal. What kind of eternity would that be which could be brought to an end in our own lifespan? Jesus asserts that it's impossible to lead the elect astray. Jesus asserts that everyone who beholdeth the Son and believeth on him shall have eternal life, and he will raise him up on the last day. Jesus asserts, I know my sheep, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. I have to take a breath. That's a lengthy list. So here we go. Here's a very helpful rule of interpretation. When forming our doctrine, our uh, belief about what the Bible teaches, here's a great rule of interpretation. Start with the clear passages of Scripture on the subject. Start there before moving to the unclear. And I would suggest to you that as clear as Wesley thought Hebrews 6 was, it's not that clear. But we start with the clear passages before moving to the unclear. Some things are easier to understand than others. And the great exhibit A on that one is Peter, who said in 2 Peter 3 that some things Paul wrote were hard to understand. I get great comfort in that. When the Apostle Peter thought, whoa, I've got to to think that through. Even though he still regarded Paul's writings as scripture. Praise the Lord. So, the scriptures are exceedingly clear. This passage, not so much. Now, I say there are massive massive problems with Wesley's view. And I use the word uh, plural, in plural, massive problems. Because another problem is not just the entire Bible on the theme, but the context of the passage itself. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. There you go. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, the writer of Hebrews would be negating all he's attempting to say about strong encouragement and a steadfast anchor of the soul if, in fact, verses 4 through 6 teaches the loss of salvation for a genuine believer. So, in summary, two massive problems with Wesley's view is uh, there are clear passages that deny what uh, Wesley's saying here. Secondly, it denies what is stated in its own context. So, how should we understand the passage then? We've cleared away the rubble of what I believe is a false view. How should we understand the passage? Here is what I believe. Remember the McDonald's analogy? When we ask, what did these words mean to the original readers? The lights come on. Everything becomes clear. And the original readers were not 21st century Americans. We sit around in some so-called Bible studies, no one having looked at the text before, no one studied the passage and asked the eight people in front of us, what does this passage mean to you? And what we do is we pool the ignorance in the room. (laughs) I think this, and I feel it means this, and I think it means I need to go get a job uh, at uh, Harrods in London. What? What? Where did you get that from here? Yeah, Uh, if you go to Bible studies like that, uh, don't. That's all I'm going to say. No, we have trained teachers who look at the passage, and hopefully the first time they look at the passage is not in the meeting. Just a thought. So here's the point. This that we're reading is a letter to the Hebrews. Well, I knew that, yeah, but, but let me repeat it. It's a letter to the Hebrews, and Hebrews, now write this down, this is amazing, are Jewish people. (laughs) And it's abundantly clear these Jewish people were very familiar with Old Testament events, especially the Exodus and Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Time after time, the writer is going to go there and mention it. There are five warning passages in Hebrews, and this is the third of these five. And in all the others, reference is made to the Exodus and the people of Israel and all the great privileges they had. They were the people of God. They were led by God. Cloud of fire by night, cloud by day. And they were miraculously delivered from Egypt yet rebelled in the wilderness and were guilty of unbelief or disobedience. And everyone except Joshua and Caleb didn't enter the promised land. What a warning. And these are warning passages. And here's the lesson. It is possible to experience miraculous events without there being a heart change. Case in point, Israel. They'd seen the parting of the Red Sea and yet grumbled in the desert and rebelled and would not believe. Unbelief is different from doubt. Doubt is uh, you're battling something. Unbelief is, I've made a decision. I will not believe. They did not believe. They would not believe. And they fell away. And that's the message here in this passage. There are great privileges, being in and around the people of God, and yet it's possible to be immersed in these things and yet not be a true believer, entering into the evidence of the courtroom, Exhibit A, Judas Iscariot. We saw it last time. Judas had a preaching ministry. Judas had a healing ministry, but he was never a true disciple. Jesus called him a devil, John 6 verse 70, Uh, Jesus called him the son of perdition, John 17, verse 12. In these words, in Mark 14, he made it clear, verse 21, the son of man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man 
if he had not been born. Those are the words of Jesus. Judas ended up in hell. What we have in the scripture is a contrast between Judas, the false disciple, though an apostle, and Peter, a disciple as well as an apostle. Jesus prayed for Peter. Satan's desire to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers, he said. There's no record of him saying any kind of prayer like that for Judas. Both were guilty of a major sin. Betrayal in the case of Judas, denial in the case of Peter. But Peter repented. Peter came back. Judas never did. He was mournful, he was sorrowful, but he never repented. And here's the point. A good tree will ultimately bear good fruit. It's been well said. The faith that fizzles was flawed from this first. If you see someone that expresses great joy being a Christian, but eight years later you can't find them anywhere except they're hostile towards the Christian faith. They never had true faith, according to 1 John 2, 19. Let's go in our Bibles. Hold your place in Hebrews. Go to Mark chapter 4. This was read earlier in the uh, service. Mark chapter 4. And we have the parable of the soils. Often called the parable of the sower. But really it's about not the sower's activity, but it's all about the soil. Four different types of soil. Look at verse 10. Jesus had related the parable and now he was giving an explanation, verse 10, Mark chapter uh, 4, verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables and he said to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those, for those outside, everything's in parables. This, this goes against uh, Sunday school lessons. Why did Jesus teach in parables? So everyone would understand. No, read verse 13. Um, actually, verse 12. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Jesus said one of the reasons he teaches in parables is so the people of God get it and those outside don't. Whoa, that, that will... I don't think that's right. Well, I don't think you're right. <laughs> ouch. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Amen. Verse 13, And he said to him, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you under understand all the parables? I think inherent in this is, if you don't get this, you're not going to be unable, you're going to be unable to unlock other parables. This is key. This is a key for understanding your Bible. The sower sows the word... And then the first type of soil is related here. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So they don't like what they hear. Satan comes immediately. There's no faith expressed or professed. Satan's come and they've forgotten immediately what was heard. Verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Now, this looks like God's at work. It looks like this is a genuine believer. You preach and they say, wow, my life's been changed. I remember when I was asked to do what I was asked to do at age 14 in the service, which was raise my hand to the preaching of the gospel in response and then walked the aisle and signed the card. There was a guy next to me and he was saying, okay, oh, this is amazing. I feel like I've just walked into light. And I'm thinking, well, has anything happened to me? All I know is I, I'm a sinner before a holy God and I need to repent. And there was no obvious emotion going on in me except I needed Jesus. And this guy was all over. Everyone looked at him. Wow, he, you know, John may have been converted, but this guy really got it. I never saw him again. I don't know if he ever went to a church service again, but I never saw him. Here I am, more than 40 years later, it took. It was the real deal. I'm not sure about it. But he made a great profession. Oh, joyous, joyous, joy. Joy, joy, joy. I got joy in my heart. 
He received it with joy, but didn't last. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Isn't it interesting? Same words as we find in Hebrews. Fall away. And others are sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That's a key word. Fruit. There's no fruit. And in all three of these soils, until we get to the fourth one, no fruit emerges. Different reactions, but no fruit. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And inherent in this is the idea that it's not just one season, it's season after season. There's fruit and more fruit and more fruit that is seen in the life. Four types of soil. The first three describes reaction to the word that is sown. And some at the beginning, here's the point, look like true believers. Again, regarding the rocky ground, professors, we're told, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. I'll never be the same. Wow. Do you know, it's very possible to look good for a while. But it takes the real thing to endure. And the real thing is a gift from God, which is true saving faith. It's not a temporary look at Jesus. There was a season in my life when Jesus was meaningful to me. But it's an enduring look. I want to know him. Heaven won't be heaven if, if, if all the golf courses are free and I've got no rent to pay. I, I want to see Jesus. That's true of the true believer. You see, time reveals the heart. we got time. Is it a true conversion? Well, let's wait. We don't like that. We're, we're, we're Americans. We've got microwaves. We want to know atomic time. We want to know exactly what time it is right now. Tell me the time. And we want it now, not eight seconds from now. It's a long time. But time reveals the heart. And amidst the trials and the persecutions of life, we see whether someone's profession of faith is revealing a true possession of faith. Lasting fruit. Lasting obedience to Christ's commands. That's the issue. This is not about how many souls you win. This is about are you in any way interested in the commands of Christ and do you want to do those things? Again, the enemy will try and come in and say, well, fruit is conversions, and have you led anyone? When was the last time? And you're under condemnation straight away. But is there a desire to share the word because you believe the word? If there's no desire for the word, check your heart. It may not be beating spiritual, spiritually speaking. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. What I love about the scripture is there's a consistency. So Hebrews is consistent with the parable of the soils. And it's consistent with everything else in our Bibles, as you would expect. Matthew 7, again the words of Jesus, verse uh, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How will we recognize them? You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Remember that phrase, thorn bushes. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, I would insert, makes a profession of faith, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, preached in the name of Christ, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Think about Judas Iscariot. He did all of that. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now, notice this. I get comfort from these words. Really? You're a strange person, John. You get comfort from verse 23. Yes, lots of comfort. How can you get comfort from verse 23? Uh, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. The word never is encouraging because it does not say, I knew you once, but you blew it. No, I never knew you. There never was a time we had a relationship. Wow. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then he goes on to say, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And we know the story. And the foolish man is the one who hears the word but never did anything with it. Back to the book of Hebrews. Are you seeing the consistency of Scripture? I hope you are. This is the word of God, ladies and gentlemen, as I say often. Amen. So what is true personal saving faith? The reformers expressed it with three Latin words. Notitia. We have the word notice in England, in English, and it refers to the fact that there should be information. The gospel is about news, something that has happened. Christ has come. What is the news? God loved this world, even though we were treasonous rebels, by sending his only son into the world, born of a virgin, living an absolutely pure, sinless life, dying on the cross in the place of sinners, rising again from the dead, and is now at the place of all authority in the universe, so that anyone who repents and believes the good news of what God has done for us in Christ is saved from the anger and the wrath of God now and forever. That's the good news. And the notitia is exactly that. The notice, the information about the gospel. Secondly, you believe the information. You've got the information. And ascensus is the Latin word. I assent. I believe the information. But that, and those two by themselves, does not produce what is saving faith? The reason for that is demons have the first two. They know the true God. They know the way of redemption. And they hate everything about it. And they believe it. The Bible says the demons also believe and tremble. So having the first two in place simply qualifies you to be a demon. Strong stuff. So what separates the men from the boys? What separates the real deal from the demonic. And it's that third one, fiducia, in Latin, which means I believe and I trust. I throw my whole trust onto Christ. It's putting your faith in Christ. Not simply believing He is the Son of God, but entrusting your life to the Son of God. That's true saving faith. Back to Hebrews 6. For it is impossible, verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, we've read this, hmm, once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. The verb here is in what we call the aorist tense in Greek, and it signifies a completed past action. Notice this, they have fallen away. In other words, for the first century context, they've gone back to Judaism. And what they've done in the process, even though they've been in and around the people of God, is they've denied the saving work of Christ on the cross. That's what Judaism is. It's a denial of Jesus as the Messiah and his substitutionary atoning work on the cross. And so, what do we read? Reading on. It is impossible, that's the context, to restore them again to repentance since they, notice they, are 
at this moment, crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. These are strong words. And in the first century context, it makes perfect sense. Don't go back to Judaism. You know who Christ is and what he did on the cross. He's the great high priest who has gone into the heavens and made atonement and he's accessible. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmity. Don't go back. Don't go back. There's nothing to go back to. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Joshua. Anything you can name. His priesthood is greater than that of Levi. He has the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is the theme of the next chapter, chapter 7. And those who go back, hear this, those who go back to Judaism in the Hebrew context stand with the Christ crucifiers. It's as if they're shouting out by going back, crucify him, crucify him. They're one with the crowd that said that and shouted that. What a condemnation that is. Walking through the phrases of the passage, now we can understand the words with the context now and the foundation laid we read, verse 4, those who have once been enlightened, they know the truth about Christ, they know He is the Son of God, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Scholars here are not absolutely sure what's in view here. Perhaps it's a reference to participating in the Lord's Supper. I'm not completely sure on that point. But in some way they've tasted something and have shared in the Holy Spirit. This is the shared experience with the people of God, recognizing Israel of old, the covenant people of God, thousands upon thousands shared in the work of the Holy Spirit amongst that covenant community. They're shared in the Holy Spirit's activity. They witness life in the Spirit. And in the church, people witness the life of God as people say, this is what happened to me in answer to prayer. This is how God has brought me out of this. I had a problem with this. Look what the Holy Spirit has done. Verse 5. And have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. In other words, they've been under true, sound teaching. It's interesting to me, I hope it's interesting to you, when I read Mark chapter 6, verse 20, and it says of King Herod... Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. I read that afresh this week, and I'm not sure I remembered that. Herod loved John's preaching. He reacted to it with joy. He heard him gladly. Doesn't that sound like the parable? of Jesus about the soil. Immediately received it with joy until John started saying, you're in sin. Ultimately, though he loved John the Baptist's preaching, he was the foolish perpetrator in John's martyrdom as his head was cut off. Next phrase, and the powers of the age to come. Now this is very interesting. The Bible speaks of two ages, this age and the age to come. And I believe those two designations mark what we have from here on out. This age and the age to come. And the dividing event between those two events of, of the ages is the second coming of Christ. Before Christ comes, we're going to be in this age. After he comes, it's the age to come. Can you say amen? Amen. And the Bible says here that these, they have experienced the powers of the age to come. Now think about it. In the age to come, there's total health. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. And that's why healing, in a sense, is taking from the power of the age to come, where everybody is healed. No one has to have a healing service in heaven. Come forward if you're blind. No, we can all see. Is that you, Paul? Are you saying something? I can't hear you. I'm deaf. No, everyone's got perfect health in glorified bodies. And so we're taking from the age to come 
and bringing it into the here and now, this age, and we're tasting of the powers of the age to come when healing takes place. That's wonderful. We're invading the present age with the future age. Lord, in heaven, no one is going to be sick. Lord, would you come and heal someone now? And what God does in answer to prayer is what he does is he takes from that which will be true of everybody's experience in the age to come, the glorified believers, and brings it into the here and now. And we experience now what is the awesome reality in the age to come. There's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no pain. Healed by the power of God. Hebrews 2 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So in the life of the covenant community of God, people had experienced signs and wonders and various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And people had been present and seen it and yet had gone back like their ancestors in the wilderness that seen the miraculous, either seeing the power of God themselves, think of Exodus once again, parting of the Red Sea, or seeing the power of God displayed as someone is brought into the Christian service in that first century and they're healed by the power of the Lord. Miracles took place. Remember again, Judas had a healing ministry. No one complained to Jesus and said, look, when Judas prays, no one gets healed. Let me quote Kent Hughes at this point. He agrees with me. And he writes this, The reason I hold to this interpretation are as follows. First, the participation in spiritual realities of those who fall away, though they have been enlightened and shared and tasted the things of God, parallels the privilege experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness who fell away and died in unbelief. As part of the covenant community, the fallen Israelites have placed blood on the doorpost, eaten the Passover lamb, miraculously crossed the Red Sea, observed the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, tasted the miraculous waters at Marah, daily ate manna and heard the voice of God at Sinai, but their hearts were hardened in unbelief and they fell away from the living God. True, some of those who perished in the wilderness were regenerate and some were unregenerate, but both were visible members of the covenant community and thus shared a profound mutuality of spiritual experience. So what a warning Hebrews 6 is. Along with Hebrews 10, I believe these are the strongest warnings in the entire New Testament. What's the message? Don't play with Christ. Don't play church. Be the real deal. A true disciple, not a false convert. We're in Hebrews 6, let's move on to verse 7. And as I say, time reveals what the rain produces. Look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, rain falls on the just and the unjust, and produces a crop. Oh, let's listen up. Useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So what's in view? Fruit. What's in view? A crop. The next verse reveals the contrast. Verse 8. But if it bears thorns and thistles, thorns choke the word. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Again, verse 8 reveals no fruit over time. Let me ask you, does your life portray obedience to the Lord's commands? Now, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about direction. Do you want to know his will and do you want to do it? Not in a former time. Well, 18 years ago, I was really committed Now, is there an ongoing desire to know the will of God in his word and do it? James 1.22 says, 
But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So that's the message about those and about they. But here, the message to the true believer is found in verse 9. Note, we don't have the word those, we don't have the word they, we have the words your and we have the word beloved. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Oh, hallelujah. Now I'm just going to read what follows. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What a warning this is, Hebrews 6. Don't play. Don't play games. The opposite of that is to punch the Christian card. Yeah, I'll go to a service. Yeah, I'll say yes to Jesus and then I'll go back to my life of sin. Andrew Murray writes this, My assurance of salvation is not something I can carry with me as a railway ticket or a banknote to be used as occasion calls. My assurance of salvation is alone to be found in the living fellowship with the living Jesus in love and obedience. Is there a spiritual heartbeat? Are there signs of life? You might have been on the roadside and witnessed an automobile wreck and the medics are called in and they check for vital signs to see if someone is alive. If the angels of God were to check your vitals, can they see that there's life? You may not be walking very fast, but there's a heartbeat. There's something in you that wants the will of God. You want to know the true God and believe the true gospel. And you love hearing the word. You want to do it. Is there something in you or is there just, ah, I'm not feeling it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and we'll end here. What a strong message. Why is it so strong? Because it's a real warning. Apostasy is a real thing. And here's the point we've seen for a long time now. The elect will hear this and say, I don't want to go there. I want to be close to Christ. Who's going to listen to the warning? The non-elect? No. The true people of God. And God uses the warnings to keep the elect on the straight and narrow path that leads to salvation. Should we go off? He brings us back through the means of warnings. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we may, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I was once uh, at seminary and for the first time a Greek scholar said, have you ever read Hebrews 13 in Greek? And we looked at him like, hey, it's our second week here. No. (laughs) And he says, let me just unveil to you what the original text says. There's only one translation that ever gets close to it. It is so powerful. We looked like, what? He says, the nearest we can get to it is the Amplified Bible. You ever read the Amplified Bible? When you read it, you've got to read it loud. (laughs) Here's the Amplified Bible. 
For he has said, I will never under any circumstances desert you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support, nor will I in any degree leave you helpless, nor will I forsake or let you down or relax my hold on you. Assuredly not. (laughs) What a sentence. In the original text, this Greek scholar said to us, this is a word and a phrase that is repeated so many times that the English translators think it's superfluous to, to say it, but it literally reads like this, I will not, I will not, I will not cease from holding you up, assuredly not. There's such an emphasis on God being the one who brings us to salvation, and once he starts that process, he will not relax his hold. And that's the joy for the Christian. I didn't get myself in. He got me in. And because salvation is because of him and my faith is God's gift, he started the work and he will finish. My confidence, my boast is him. Not so that on one day in the future I can stand before God and say, my will got me here. But it's all of grace from start to finish. So that we sing, worthy is the Lamb. Do you see what he did? Worthy is the Lamb. He did it. He got me here. By his power, I'm redeemed. By his work, his alone, I'm here. That's true for you too. He he saved you. He saved us. He redeemed us by his blood. He did it all. Once we understand that, we realize he'll never cease holding you up. Let's pray. Father, thank you. What a message to the those and the they, but what a message to the you and the us. We are so thankful that your word is clear and that we can understand it as we study it. And we come out having a more beautiful, perfect view of our Savior. There's more to know, there's more to learn, but oh, we joy in the fact that our Savior is a perfect Savior who never loses one, who never has to report to the Father. It was a bad week this week. We lost eight in Phoenix. We lost 17 in New York this week. But one who will say, of all you've given me, I have lost nothing. What a Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.